Hello, everyone, and welcome to a further edition of Housefeld's Collective Cast. I'm here with Anthony Mason, Nicola Boyle, and Tim Brown. And today we're going to be talking about blueprints um, and also about umbrella proceedings orders, which is something that we've covered previously, but we're going to be talking about them in a bit more detail. So first of all, we'll talk about um, blueprints. So you may might be thinking that a blueprint is a, um, a technical engineering drawing. Um, and you'll know the term is first used by Sir John Herschel in the 19th century. Um, we're going to be talking about those blueprints, though, in the context of collective proceedings. Um, and we've discussed previously in a number of editions of the collective cast, in fact, um, the relevant certification standard, including following the Supreme Court's judgment in Merricks. But most recently, we've seen the concept of this blueprint introduced. Um, and Tim, we've seen that it came in, didn't it, by the Court of Appeal in the um, roll-on, roll-off uh, shippers uh, cartel case. Yes, yes, that's right. We've we've had this word blueprinting used in a couple of cases um, recently. The shipping case is, is the first one. So that's a claim by car purchasers against shipping carriers uh, in relation to the inflated costs of shipping new cars to their destinations. Um, so in this case, there were two very different methodologies for assessing quantum put forward by the parties. You had silo pricing put forward by the claimants versus overall pricing by the defendants. And the class rep argued um, that consumers were charged separately for delivery of their cars. Uh, which included an unlawful overcharge. Um, and in this way, the delivery charge occurred in a silo and was unaffected by the pricing of the vehicle itself. Um, the carriers argued that there was no silo pricing and cars were purchased by negotiation of a single overall price, including all component costs and charges, including delivery costs. So the, blue, the blueprint issue um, was the extent to which the class rep needed to show how their silo pricing damages methodology would ultimately be proved at trial. And the Court of Appeal held that the level of detail of a methodology required by the CAT will always be fact uh, and context sensitive and will turn upon such matters as the availability of evidence. Um, the methodology put forward at the certification stage should provide a blueprint for the parties and the cats of the way ahead to trial, although it is not cast in stone um, and it, ca it can be challenged. Um, and then the Court of Appeal held that the cat had erred in holding merely that the two starkly opposing pricing theories were for trial. The cat needed to exercise its case management powers to bring out how the methodologies would be made good. Um, the cat could have directed, for example, at the certification stage, that the class rep should set out more fully its response to the overall pricing case presented by the shipping companies, or it could have directed the shipping companies to provide further detail of their case and then ordered the class rep to respond. Uh, and just on this methodology point, the Court of Appeal made some interesting comments about the contrasting methodologies um, in relation to the defendant's criticisms that the claimant's damages methodology was oversimplified compared to the defendant's methodology involving consideration of all component costs in the sale of the vehicle, much of which would not be in the possession or control of the car makers uh, nor the carriers. Um, 
sorry, much of which would be in the possession and control of the car makers, not the carriers or the customers. So not in in, in possession of the of the parties to the to this litigation. The Court of Appeal did not choose between the two methodologies, but said that proportionality and practicability govern the construction of the methodology. So there's there's no bright line between methodology and data. The two are closely linked. Um, the methodology chosen will be informed by the availability of data. Um, if data is not available that would be required to apply a particular methodology or would not be available at proportionate cost, then that methodology is inappropriate. So a lack of data may therefore mean that a theoretically preferable methodology cannot be selected in practice. And there was no rule confining a methodology to a particular econometric technique or to expert evidence from economists. It would be derived from a combination. It could be derived from a combination of industry expert evidence um, and expertise in economics. So I think the Court of Appeal is essentially saying that, you know, the, the more simple methodology put forward by the, the claimants isn't is, isn't necessarily one that won't be preferred, taking into account the availability of, of data and other factors. OK, thanks. Thanks very much, Tim. I think I mean, there's all sorts of interesting questions, I think, aren't there, about um, the extent to which this idea of a blueprint is sort of is implementing the Microsoft test, putting the bar slightly higher. Um, but before we come to those points, I think the idea of the blueprint was used by the CAT in a subsequent case at the CPO hearing um, that was in the meta case. Do you want can you give us just a few details as to how the blueprint was referred to in meta yes yes this this word did crop up against crop up again in the meta case um before the cat um and just just by way of background so this is a claim um on behalf of uk facebook users against meta it's an abuse of dominance claim and in essence the claim is that by taking um valuable personal data without paying for it i.e. by offering a zero monetary price and offering only social networking services in return, Facebook offered an unfairly low purchase price for users' valuable um, personal data. Um, and so the CAT said that in these circumstances, again, just setting the, the scene, depending on how the personal data in Facebook um, service are valued, the CAT stated that there are three possible outcomes. So the first is that there's no abusive price. The exchange of personal data for the Facebook service is not abusive in competitional terms. Second is the price is, is abusive in that Meta is charging too much for the Facebook service and should be making some kind of balancing payment to users to make up for the fact that the user's data is so valuable. Third is that the price is too low and that users are free riding and should in fact be paying Meta for the Facebook service in addition to permitting Meta to use that user's personal data. Um, and then the, the CAT equated the blueprinting requirement um, with the process test, which requires that the methodology by way of which this difficult question is to be resolved is laid out now. Um, and, and then the CAT sort of focused in on two, two particular parts or issues of the case that required further articulation to meet this blueprinting requirement. Um, the first was that Meta contended that the outcome of the unfair price abu 
price abuse allegation would be affected by the fact that Facebook was provided in the context of a two-sided market. Um, social media services on the one hand and advertising services on the other. The two are interlinked because the advertisers pay Meta for access to the Facebook users. And so the methodology um, advanced by the claimants for the assessment of quantum needed to be capable of dealing with this point. And the cat held that the expert evidence did not address this issue. So the class rep has to address how it will meet this defence if the action proceeds. Um, and, and the cat noted that this requires a cards on the table approach from the defendants. If there are methodolog methodological problems, they need to be articulated at certification. And then the second um, related issue to blueprinting was specifically on disclosure. So to the extent that the expert methodology for the assessment of quantum was dependent on disclosure from the defendants, the disclosure needed to be articulated. So this, this is needed in order to show the tribunal how a particular assertion um, will be made good at trial. So, so these are the two issues that are part of the, the blueprinting requirement as, as the term is being used um, in the CAT and the Court of Appeal. Thanks, Tim. And so I take it on meta that the, the claimants are going to go away and come back with a, another blueprint? I think that's the general expectation, yes. They've been given the opportunity to come back um, with a what needs to be um, a, a, a reformulated damages methodology. The, the cat said that mere tinkering wouldn't be adequate. So um, I think the general expectation is that there will be a, a revised methodology. Yeah, OK. I mean, I mean, looking at the Microsoft test, though, you still claimants have to come up with a a methodology their experts do that's grounded in the facts of the case and it can't be purely theoretical purely hypothetical as we know so i guess the, the big question is is this idea of a blueprint putting the bar any higher for claimants um or is it just a sort of an articulation of the microsoft test another word for the longer form of words that is um, yeah. lost in that case yes yeah, so i do and i think it's the latter i do, I do think that it is it should be equated with the, the process test and it's a way of sort of putting flesh on on the bones of that test yeah but i think jim there is an issue isn't there where does merits meet methodology um mm. because you can have a claim with very good merits where you may struggle to come up with a me methodology where does that sit and equally where does it sit with the broad acts test that the you know the supreme court in merits talked about a lot if you can't you know, if you if you simply can't come up with a methodology, um, why should that preclude you from being able to bring your claim? And there does seem to me to be some confusion here at the moment as to how the, the merits and the blueprint sit together. I mean, I, I understand why the cat wants to see a methodology set out, of course, but I think there is a danger of this going back on some of the territory we thought we'd already covered. Yeah, it feels there's a, a line where it, it makes sense from a case management perspective to to ensure the case will be able to run to trial. But as you say, Anthony, what if you don't know the full extent of the data available? You may want to amend your methodology in due course. And I think it does bring this question, as we've seen in a couple of cases, of people being sent away to rethink, to maybe get more data of what is the requirement at certification. Now, we, the idea here was that it was a relatively swift process that didn't involve 
extensive disclosure, extensive ex expert evidence. And I think we can see that that line could shift as it does in the States to something much more involved coming before you get I think this is the second danger of this, isn't exactly is this, this disclosure issue, because you can see a situation where the, the claimant saying, well, actually, it's very difficult for me at the moment because I haven't seen your disclosure for me to articulate the methodology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the court or the defendant says, well, have bags of my disclosure and have a look at it and see if you can come up with a methodology. And then you are, as you say, full square back into a world, a US style certification world where you've got a huge amount of material and expense and cost. Um, in, in the, at the very early stages, which is exactly what I had understood, we were trying to get away from in, mm -hmm. this, in this regime. Um, so, yeah, maybe it comes to your point, Anthony, if you've got a strong case on the merits, hmm. that's one thing, because you say it's then a matter of finding the right methodology to quantify it. Yeah. It's another, perhaps, if they're saying there isn't enough information here, and maybe you do get into questions of is there targeted pre-action disclosure to help you? Yeah. And the other point case. that concerns me is the point that Tim made, which which is this point about, well, if you haven't got it, you should identify to the defendant what mm. you need. Now, you may very well have no idea what the defendant's got. I mean, how, how do I know what Google or Apple have in their data mm. systems that might or might not allow me to have a methodology to, to prove mm. the case? But, I'm, but on this basis, I'm supposed to second guess you know, the, the sort of unknown, unknown territory, mm -hmm. I think, that we're getting into in, into there. And that that is concerning. And that's quite different from usual litigation, where you have hands on cards on the table with a disclosure report, yeah. which allows people to see what's available. But I think, I mean, it's right, isn't it, that the Court of Appeal certainly talked about an initial blueprint. And they also talked about it not being set in stone. Yeah. So akin to the you know, as the cats described in relation to the methodology, it has to be an adaptable and flexible yeah. methodology. Mm -hmm. um, it just seems, you know, that that it's important that the the idea of a blueprint is not such a detailed blueprint that actually you end up with all this cost and, um, you but, know. But this is going to be an open door at which defendants push, isn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, now it's been opened. We can, we're going to see, and we are seeing on any any number of these applications, attacks questions about methodologies so yeah this, this one is, will run and this is the emphasis now rather than a strikeout it feels like this is where the the target yeah. is going and so it's going to need some very careful management to make sure it's sticking to what it's trying to achieve mm -hmm. rather than being taken too far down sort yeah. of a rabbit well, i think we've now seen three of these recent cases where the, the cat have effectively said go away and think again this isn't up to scratch. Yeah, and I think the third example, Anthony, was in relation to the um, Apple uh, iPhones case, where the um, the CPO hearing took place. So the the claims the representative was um, was told to, uh, well, invited actually to make some disclosure applications, um, which uh, you know, and, and and the CPO hearing was adjourned um, on that basis. Um, but I think it seems safe to say that blueprint is a word that we're going to be hearing um, more and more. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point there will be, you know, greater um, discussion, I suppose, of whether or not we are closer to this really technical engineering drawing or um, blueprint just means a, a plan for the um, litigation in a slightly more informal sense. So Anthony mentioned um, case management, which brings us quite neatly to uh, UPOs, Nicola. So this is something we've discussed a bit previously, but we have seen 
the cat um, employing these UPOs now? And we know a little bit more, I think it's fair to say, about how they may or may not be used. Yeah, I think, Lucy, we talked about it previously in the context of the interchange litigation, where we've got um, proceedings against MasterCard and Visa by a large number of retailers still, alongside the collective action that's obviously brought by Mr Merrick's on behalf of a mm -hmm. consumer class. Mm -hmm. And I think this was the point of the of the CATS first grappling with how do we case manage these claims so that we get some consistency in judgments. In those circumstances where in those cases actually the time periods there is very little overlap between the two sets of proceedings. Mm -hmm. um, what we saw um, last month was um, the first sort of practical application of a substantive hearing trying to put some of these common issues together. Um, and that hearing, in fact, was grappling with how do you deal with pass on at a trial to be held next year? Um, and what is the, the right methodologies to be deployed by the parties? And I think we're seeing that on paper, this looks a very sensible idea of, OK, if you've got different layers of the supply chain, how do we case managers to deal with them together? I think in the reality, obviously, these things are, in fact, quite complex, as we saw, where you've got on the retailer side, a very large number of retailers from different industries. Um, you've got individual claimants, you've got the collective claimant obviously looking at things on a, an aggregate basis. So I think some very different views in that case on should retailers be providing individual disclosure data for their own individual positions? Should this proceed by reference to industry experts or indeed survey evidence that's been submitted? Um, so I think there was a, a, a two-day hearing with a lot of very different views on what the right approach was um, and judgments awaited on that in due course. Um, so I think it really shows that, that you can see where the, the principle comes from, but the cat now having to grapple with how do we how do we go about this in dealing with quite different types of claim. And we're seeing this approach on other cases as well, right, where you've got different claims at different levels of the market? Yeah, so I think the other two examples we've seen are in the um, the Roro case that you were talking about earlier, Tim, where in fact we've got a consumer, a mixed class, I think, with some consumers and businesses, and also an individual claim brought by one of the auto manufacturers. And I think there the, the cat of its own volition has seen the parallel and ordered that those cases should be at least case managed together to identify common issues. Um, we've also seen it most recently in the power cables litigation, where again, you've got claim by operators of a wind farm bringing an individual claim and then a, a collective consumer claim brought separately. Um, and I think one of the challenges we're seeing is that those proceedings are at very different um, stages procedurally. The, the, um, in, in the case of power cables, the collective hasn't even got to its first CMC. Um, and you're obviously dealing with an aggregate claim of aggregate loss versus a sort of individual claim in respect of just um, one wind farm. So I think um, whilst you can see the, the CATS approach of considering common issues, there's, there's quite a lot of issues there, I think, grappling of how to you know, do justice to, to both parties in the management of their claims. And it seems to me that the sort of $64 million question is, because as you say, you can sort of see the... Um, the reasoning behind UPOs being judicial and 
um, procedural efficiency, but do all those issues that you've talked about come to outweigh the the sort of the efficiency that's and maybe you will say it's too soon to tell. I think it would be fair to say it's it's still very much evolving. I I, I think um I think the the thing which you can completely understand from the cat's perspective is consistency in decision making. Mm. If you recall the interchange litigation where there were three trials with three different results, it, it doesn't really say too much for the right. consistency of justice. And so I can see where particularly you've got different levels of supply chain bringing competing claims that there has to be a sense of finding a way to. Um, and it does make, it does make you reflect on the decision the US Supreme Court took, obviously, in Illinois and Brook, Brick had an overshoe many years ago where, you know, the complexity of this was that way by let's have a simple approach and just mm. have direct claims now obviously that's not open to us um yeah but, to go down that route, but but it is interesting anthony i think when you reflect looking across europe now at the different approaches yeah. which are being taken to pass on and obviously the decisions which member states are taking on whether you should have an opt-in or an opt-out regime yeah. and i think we've seen a number of countries now effectively endorsing a sort of scatter damages doctrine which is once you get to the point where claims below um, that level may be too difficult to bring procedurally yeah. and unlikely to be bought that you stop there which I think is more akin to your US approach. Yeah, yeah okay which raises all sorts of really interesting questions I think from the claimant and from the defendant perspective about if you have a claim that spans multiple jurisdictions where are you where are you best to to bring it where would you prefer to defend it um i suspect we won't go into those, <laughs> those issues one for another um, right now yeah one for another episode of the collective cast but safe to say upos and blueprints i think we'll be hearing far more um of both of those uh both of those terms over the next year and probably beyond that as well um so thank you very much to anthony and nicola and tim um and we will be with you with another episode of the collective cast very soon, I'm sure.